please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Our reading today is chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Our preaching will give its primary attention to verses 1 through 7, and we will take a second message from this chapter next Sunday, verses 8 through 15, on Christian apologetics, which really comes out quite strongly in the second half of this chapter. But it is helpful and really quite necessary to interpret the first half in the light, quite literally the light, of the second. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we are obeying you upon this occasion of publicly reading the scriptures. It is the Apostle Paul who commanded such of Timothy and thus the whole church until the end of this age. Father, we thank you for this grace to obey you. We pray that we would not merely go about this work without heart, without faith. So grant us, Lord, the ministry of your spirit upon the hearing of your word, that we would recognize your authority speaking therein, and that we would, by faith, Lord, obey you and believe you, and not regret it. Hear us now as we make our petitions as the children of God, following the prayer our Lord Jesus taught us in his own school. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The word of God, Acts 6. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, 
We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. In that last verse of the chapter that we have just read, we are given a very helpful clue on how we should read and understand the entire chapter, Acts chapter 6. It is even a helpful clue on how we should read and understand the entire book of Acts. Verse 15 says, The face of this man Stephen, one of the first deacons, his face was like the face of an angel. There was a shining glory upon Stephen's face. And that shining glory was the glory you would expect to see on an angel because, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 18.10, angels dwell in the presence of God in heaven. That's why it is fitting to associate what was on Stephen's face with an angel. Now, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the scriptures also say, The skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Exodus 34, 29. And when our Lord Jesus took some disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the scripture says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Matthew 17, 2. Now what this all means for Stephen in Acts 6, 6.15, is that God has put the beauty and the glory of heaven on the face of a deacon, on the face of Stephen. Stephen did not always appear this way. This, is what, this was not his everyday face. But in the very hour, Stephen was being hated and being rejected by earthly rulers Just like his Savior was, in that very hour, God shined his own glory upon Stephen to show Stephen that he was accepted in heaven. To show the council who would remain as thick as thieves, to even show them that Stephen was accepted in heaven, if not on earth. He belonged to heaven. He was a man of heaven. By the end of chapter 7, many of you know Stephen will be dead, stoned to death. Now, how does this help us understand all of chapter 6, even the whole book of Acts? Well, this helps us, I think, quite enormously because it clarifies that the whole church of Jesus Christ is a heavenly society. The whole church, though earthly as pilgrims, is heavenly by birth by citizenship, by power, by destiny, by her loves. 
The Church of Jesus Christ is not simply a sociological construct that we have thought up to kind of corral people and get money out of them to send moralistic messages to the world. The Church of Jesus Christ is the body of the risen Son. We are a heavenly body. Therefore, we should not be surprised that some among our number might shine with the very glory of the angels who are in the presence of God. Beloved, this is why the feeding of widows gets so much attention in Acts chapter 6. Wherever God in heaven also dwells among his earthly people, wherever that happens, the priorities of heaven are going to be pressed upon his people by his spirit. Caring for the widows of God's church has always been evidence of God's holy presence with his pilgrim people on earth. Caring for widows and for sojourners and for fatherless in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a testimony that the eternal God of heaven is dwelling and tabernacling with us. It is the inbreaking. It is the inbreaking of the heavenly kingdom. Psalm 68.5 reads this way. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Where God dwells, the fatherless are looked after. Where God dwells, the widows are looked after. Deuteronomy 16.11 says that the fatherless and widows must be brought to a rejoicing condition in Israel. They must be by feeding them because God has chosen to make his name dwell among them. And Deuteronomy 24.17 says the widow must always get justice because her desperate neediness is always a reminder to Israel that she as a nation was desperately needy for redemption in Egypt. So in Acts 6... We are seeing on the face of Stephen what Christ has accomplished in his resurrection. He has united our earthly pilgrimage with the very holy presence of God, and it shines upon us. It shines on Stephen's face, and it shines in the works of the deacons for the needy. So look at Acts 6 again from another angle. What we have here is a good situation, and we have a bad situation taking place simultaneously in the church, in her earthly pilgrimage. Many of the Jews in Jerusalem have become Christians. Not a majority, but many. And this is the good situation. The number of disciples is increasing, emphasized in verse 1, emphasized also in verse 7. Some Bible scholars have calculated that the church in Jerusalem at this time was almost 25,000 souls. That's a good situation. But here's the bad situation. Some widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Every day, food was being handed out in an orderly way to the widows of this Jerusalem church. They didn't have life insurance. These widows did not own property. They had no stocks, no 
leftover 401ks, they didn't have it. They were kept alive either by their adult sons or by God's adopted sons, other Christians. But verse 1 tells us the Hellenist widows were not getting their share of the distribution. Now, who were the Hellenists? Simply put, they were Greek-speaking Jews. Though they now lived in Jerusalem, these Hellenists came from Greek cities around the Mediterranean Sea, where many Jews had been scattered in the couple centuries earlier. Now they were living in Jerusalem, and they had been attending a Greek-speaking Jewish synagogue. In many ways, they were quite different from the Jews who grew up around Jerusalem, who spoke Aramaic, who received their synagogue liturgy in Hebrew. These Greek-speaking Jews were certainly recognized as family to the Aramaic-speaking Jews, but they were not regarded highly. Now they have all been baptized, all of them. They are all now together in the one church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, which also means they have all been excommunicated from their synagogues. The Pharisees said in John 9.22, anyone who confesses Jesus to be the Christ is to be excommunicated from the synagogues. So now they are part of the church of Christ, not gaining any help from national Israel. Their help is in the Lord. So these widows, which may be numbered in the hundreds here, they have no support but what they receive in the daily distribution from the church. But there is now some kind of sin, and this is the bad situation. There's some kind of corruption, even now in the church, even as she grows, even as she prospers. The Greek-speaking Jewish widows are being neglected, which means someone or several someones is purposely not giving to them the same amount of food that is being given to the Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows. Now, before we go any any further, let's take note of something. Even the church, in the best days she might have, Even then, Satan will stir up sin and corruption in her. We must not have a Pollyannish view of this. Even when the church is tuned by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and doing her very best and prospering even under the ways of God, even then, Satan will stir up corruption in her. God will allow it. So you must not despise, beloved, the churches of Christ because you hear of some sin having broken out in that church or that other church. Pray for them and bite your tongue. That sin, of course, needs to be answered quickly, righteously, but Satan would only be more successful if he got you to withdraw from God's church because of an outbreak of sin like this in it. Or if he got you to fear the growth of the church because of an outbreak of sin as it grows. John Calvin said on this very passage, he says, it is a hard matter 
to keep many hypocrites from creeping into the multitude, whose wickedness is not discovered until such a time as they have infected some part of the flock with their infection. But then Calvin goes on immediately to say, do not let the possibility of sin's infection make you despise the increase of the church. Desire the increase of the church, he says. In fact, he says, wish for nothing more than the increase of the church. And do not be afraid if it brings outbreaks of sin. The Lord is the Lord of his church. He will deal with it. He will rule and reign in her midst, even as he adds to their number. We're seeing this right here in Acts 6. Now look what we learn from verse 2. The apostles call for a meeting of the church. Now, these apostles who do this show that they, too, are full of the Spirit. This is the best wisdom we would ever see, for example, in an earthly father, what the apostles are about to do. The apostles do not show up, put their hands on their hips, and say, oh, you don't like your bed, hey? Well, how about no bed tonight? Oh, you don't like your food, hey? Well, how about no dinner tonight? You don't like your clothes? Well, you go without clothes today. The apostles do not take away that which is right. The ministrations of Jesus Christ from the right hand of God in compassion and care of his needy body. What they take away is the offense. With great wisdom, they take it away. So look what they do. They are the appointed leaders of the church, and they come with a solution. The apostles call for the creation of the first deacons, the first diaconate. And by the time we get to Paul's final letters to Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, here are the rules on how you decide whether somebody's fit to be a deacon. But here at Acts 6, we find the beginning of the diaconate. Now, before we, before we look at these deacons, I want you to notice the reasoning of the apostles in verse 2. They say, quote, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Then they say again in verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles establish a priority and a distinction in the ministry of Christ's church right there. The top priority will be the preaching of the word of God. But caring for those with physical needs will be given a distinct place in the church's ministry. Serving tables will not be left without distinction. It will not be left to the realm of random, haphazard attention. No. Physical needs will receive a distinct ministry, but they will not have the place of top priority. Do you see it? Verse 2 and 4. The place of top priority belongs to the preaching of the word. A healthy body without a converted soul is a body punished in hell forever. It is the word that converts not food. Man will not live by bread alone. 
man will not live in the eternal face of God without the Lord's word, the word of salvation, the living word, Jesus Christ. So those called to preach must not turn away from the work of preaching to serve tables. When you don't see your pastor at every woodcutting, at every house moving, at every church cleaning, rejoice. Because he must give his attention to prayer and preaching the word. I'm not suggesting by those words that I will never be there. And if you've been there, you know I have too. But beloved, let us be very clear about this. Some of you will end up in a different church before you die. This should give you great clarity, this prioritizing of the apostles. When you go to a church and if all they have to offer is all the programs that they run for the body and not very much preaching at all, you're in the wrong church. It is not an apostolic church. I hope you, if you ever need to go to a different church, will find one that does an even better job than we are doing in the ministry of the word. The ministry of serving tables, it is going to be distinct, it is going to exist, and it is going to be organized, and it is going to be managed, and managed by who? By the some of the best men of the church. But it won't be the top priority. So verses 2 and 4 are really confirming quite clearly that the first mark of a true church is the preaching of God's word. It is God's word that speaks into the soul of man with authority and with the power to convert the dead. Man's good works do not speak with that same authority. You must always go back to that square one and believe that. It is God's word that comforts. It is God's word that confronts and brings sinners into a state of grace and keeps sinners in that state, growing them in the peace and holiness of Jesus Christ. Beloved, God has decided to ordinarily act in the world by his spirit through his word. This is why why we read in Acts 10.44 that, quote, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And it says in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And it says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God has that blade. So, beloved, do not neglect the priorities of Christ and his apostles. Choose a church whose top priority is preaching the word of God. And be warned. Please hear this warning. If you put yourself outside of the priority of God's word being preached, you are refusing communion with God. 
You are refusing to hear God. You are refusing to be made new by God's chosen instrument of regeneration and renovation and reformation. You are saying, I don't want what God is offering. Now let's look at the deacons. They were seven men of good repute, meaning they were known for some time. They weren't upstarts. They weren't guys who showed up yesterday. Paul actually makes this a key mark of finding deacons in 1 Timothy. He says they must not be recent converts. To be of good repute means you have been observable, which means you have been available, which means your life has not been lived in secret. I think we're not saying anything like this, that a new Christian or somebody coming to a new church has to open up everything about their life right away. We're not saying that at all. It's sometimes very helpful to be kind of quiet and private for a while. But if we are going to select a deacon to serve in Christ's office, he must be somebody well-known. So these deacons were among the church already. They had made themselves available and visible to the body. Their reputation, their good reputation, was known by all. And then it says they were also full of the spirit and of wisdom. This means they were born of God. They had professed faith in Christ. And their lives revealed a zeal for the things of God as revealed in the word of God. The Holy Spirit himself is always zealous for the things of God. Jesus says in John 15, 26, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It shouldn't be difficult to say, well, what does a man full of the spirit live like? He can't stop bearing witness to Christ in his speech and his conduct because he's full of the same spirit. Jesus says in John 16, 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. An ordinary man, then, not the son of God, but an adopted son of grace, an ordinary man who is full of the spirit and of wisdom, is a man who tenaciously, intensely, and with zeal clings to the doctrine of Christ, to the Christian faith. Another way to say this is found in 1 Timothy 3.9, where Paul gives those qualifications for choosing deacons in all the churches. He says local church deacons, quote, must hold the mystery of the faith with a, with a clear conscience. That's a man who's full of the spirit and of wisdom. He clings to the doctrine of Christ. You can't wrestle it away from him. You can't bribe him away from him. Now, a man who is full of the spirit and of wisdom may be a man who has a very sinful past. He certainly may be. All Christians have a very sinful past. If you don't, then you don't know what it is to be a Christian. You don't know your papa, Adam the first. 
You don't know what you're what it means to be conceived in sin, Psalm 51. Every Christian has a very sinful past. Some of these deacons may have even had a notorious sinful past. But now he is known for his allegiance to Christ. Now he is known for his dignity. Now he is known for his honorable way of speaking to others. Now he is known for his self-control before the computer screen, on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere, public and private. Now he is known for his integrity toward money and wealth. 1 Timothy 3.8 states all those things I just stated. Now he is not greedy. And if this man who is full of the spirit and of wisdom, if this deacon now sins publicly or privately, his sin stands out not because it is what everyone expected anyway. It stands out because it was not expected because of his reputation of being full of the spirit and of wisdom. We recognize in his failures that it doesn't fit his good reputation Because Christ is his all in all, he will quickly, when he sins, he will quickly and he will sincerely recover from sin through confession and repentance. So let's state the fact most clearly, and let's state it most simply. These first deacons, and don't miss this, these first deacons were some of the best men in the Christian church at Jerusalem. Like Stephen, they were not full of themselves. See what it says of him in verse 8? They were not full of themselves. They were full of grace. They were full of power. The closer you got to them, the more Jesus got closer to you because of them. This doesn't mean they were charismatic. Please don't make this error. This does not mean, to be full of the Spirit does not mean they were charismatic or that they were socially charming or that they were high energy or that they were fast talkers. It doesn't mean any of that. That's all fluff and stuff. It doesn't even need to be there to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. What it means is that they were fixated and dedicated and resolute for Christ and his kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world, which are fading and passing away. They didn't care too much about kingdoms under judgment. They cared about souls under judgment and souls redeemed. Beloved, make no mistake. These first deacons were men of the highest quality. They were men whom God was pleased to shine his heavenly glory on their face. So again, this passage wants us to see, refuses us to not see it. We must see that deacons are some of the best men in the Christian church. And seeing that, we are now allowed to see something else that comes to the very heart of the gospel. In the kingdom of God, those who are in the lowest place 
widows and sinners, are served by those who are in the highest place. Those who are in the lowest place are served by those who are in the highest place. Beloved, if you find that there are some things in the church of God or some people that you don't want to get near with a 10-foot pole, you have not yet learned who Jesus Christ is. You must go sit at his feet. You are just a beginner. You must learn who he is. Because in the kingdom of God, those who are in the lowest place, widows and sinners, are served by those who are in the highest place, men who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom, exceptional men, men made by heaven through grace in Christ. In Luke chapter 4, we read about this very thing. We read about what happened when our Lord Jesus showed up at the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath day. He rose at the time of the scripture reading. He took the scroll. It was of the prophet Isaiah. It had been written hundreds of years before he was born of Mary. He took that scroll, he unrolled it, and he read in it to those in the synagogue of himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 4, 18 and 19. Do you see what God has done? He looks upon those who have nothing to give, And he gives himself to them. He gives his one and only servant son, the highest one, the best man of heaven. He gives him to those who have nothing so that grace would receive the praise. The grace and goodness of God would receive the praise and not the readiness or worthiness of men. How the Lord loves the widow and the fatherless and the homeless. He loves them in this particular way because when they receive the kingdom of Jesus Christ and all of its wonder and its many treasures, it is a testimony to who God is, a God of grace, not of merit. The divine son is the one who said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, now he says even there, for even the Son of Man, he states it this way because he is making it very clear that even the highest man was not outside of this arrangement that the greatest will be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here it is, beloved. The whole diaconate in the church of Jesus Christ is a proclamation of the gospel by its very structure. The best of men serving the lowliest of men. Where did that ever get into the the kingdom of God? 
do not think that it is just about ethics alone, that we have to make sure that our public deacons are clean men. Yes, it's certainly part of that, but it's more deep than that. It is about the gospel. It is about the person of Jesus Christ himself. The gospel of our salvation is rehearsed again and again in the office of the deacon. Those who are great in graces are set apart to serve those who are least in ability, least in wealth. And Christ crucified for sinners shines through all of this. Let us pray. Our God and Father, We pray, O God, that our Lord Jesus Christ would have all the glory that must redound to his name in the office of the deacon. We pray, O Lord, that radiating through that office like the light on Stephen's face will be the testimony that Christ himself dwells in our midst, and his own compassion, his own hand, his own heart is carried forth through the soup, through the coat, through the shelter, and that he who was high and lifted up is dwelling among those who are contrite of heart and tremble at the word. So, Father, we pray for our deacons today. Pray for Jerry. We pray, Lord, for Bill. And we pray for Paul. And our deacon nominee, Josh. Father, we pray that these men would be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And that you're calling them to this office would be a great joy to them and a great grace in them as they see that it is to reflect Jesus Christ in the very heart of the gospel. So, Lord, keep their hands clean. Grant that they would walk in your narrow way, that they would be valiant in their fight against sin in their own life, that they would be full of joy, an unconquerable joy, as they see why you have given them the graces you have. We pray, Lord, that the church of Jesus Christ and all who receive the ministry of the deacons outside of the church, who are many, that they would indeed, Lord, receive a revelation and understanding of the very cornerstone upon which this kingdom is built, that the heavenly stone whom the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. That the greatest among us was the one who came lowest among us. And not only, Lord God, we praise you, not only did your son come near to us, but he was touched. He took our infirmities. He became sick and dead in our flesh. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be like Stephen, each and all of us, and that none of us would turn away from the light on his face, 
we would know that we are a heavenly people and that we are upon the earth to testify to Christ, even should we die for it. Let it be our great joy if it is our calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.